This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeques, and I am a former pastor who used to defend his faith the completely wrong way. And then the Lord changed my attitude and my approach. And today I serve as the president and the executive director of the Think Institute, which is a Christian teaching and outreach organization that helps ordinary Christians articulate, share, and defend the Christian message and build a legacy in their families so that they can articulate the Christian worldview with boldness and answer the world's questions. And today we're going to be talking about a really cool element of the Christian worldview, which is the idea of stories and myths. Stories and myths are a really great way to learn about life and the world and truth. And you might say, but myths, myths are by definition fake, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. What we're going to see is that there is such a thing as a myth that can be true. What we're going to talk about is how you, as a Christian father or mother, can teach your kids truth and how you can learn truth yourself by reading and interacting with the legendarium of Tolkien. And of course, if we're talking about Tolkien, there's only one man that I could possibly bring in to talk about Tolkien. He's been on to talk about imaginative apologetics. We talked about that a little over a year ago in 2022. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. This is the guy that you want to hear from if you're going to be interacting with Tolkien and the Christian worldview. And so without any further ado, let me bring him on and introduce you to Michael Chahosky. Mike, how you doing, brother? Well, I, I had my, you know, my pipe, I was going to step outside. Do you mind? I'll be no, back. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Come on back in a few. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, oh, and is that okay? Are well, we you know, flexible? Headline, we're, listen, when it comes to pipe smoking, it's, yeah. it's, we're very flexible. It's good. Oh, excellent. Um, okay. Any wizard or Dunedain worth yeah. his pipe weed is going to, is going to have a pipe ready to smoke. Certainly. So Mike and I are both here. We both have our pipes. Mike, tell us a little bit about, your own work with the Tolkien Legendarium, and please define that term for us, would you? I had to refresh my own memory. Thanks again, Joel, for having me on for the, uh, I think, fourth fourth or fifth time. I, I love it every time. It's it's great to see you, and it means a lot. So thank you, first and foremost. Of course. So it's a, it's a Latin noun. I, I hadn't realized that. But basically, as you said, it's a collection or the corpus of Tolkien's works. Another appropriate way to refer to Tolkien's books is just to refer to it as his mythology. It encompasses the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, probably to Tolkien scholars, but not, you know, casual readers, something like the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which I'll talk about later. And yeah, so that's what the legendarium or mythology, that's what that means. Okay. So it is mythology, which I love yeah. because I recently just finished reading the Silmarillion, which is oh. Tolkien's, did I tell you that? I, didn't I know. I know you were reading The Hobbit to your children, mm -hmm. uh, but you probably finished that by now. Yeah, we finished The Hobbit. We Good. we also finished The Fellowship of the Ring. We finished right. Two Towers, and we're like a third of the way through Return of the King. And you got me beat. I got to start picking up The Two Towers again. Our kids have, we've gotten sidetracked into a number of other things, but good oh, for you. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Well, I don't have to tell you about the benefits yeah. of reading Tolkien to our kids. That is what we're here to talk about. But Ab Absolutely, sir. And mm -hmm. one of the really cool things about the Silmarillion as part mm -hmm. of the Legendarium is it really 
is like mythology. You feel like you're reading an ancient myth. And I think part of the reason for that is because it's dealing with such timeless truths in the way that ancient myths do, even if they're not true stories in terms of factual history. Right. Could you talk about this idea of like a true myth and what makes Tolkien important as a writer? Yeah. So first of all, we're so enculturated to define myth as a false narrative or the myth of weight loss. It refers to a something you should not believe. Obviously, we kind of have to say myth and story, but it really is something that everybody ought to know, at least in our Western civilization used to know. Mythos is story. It's story. In fact, originally prior to Plato in the fifth century BC, mythos and logos, two Greek words, meant virtually the same thing. It was an account of reality, mythos through primarily through the metaphor, imagination, simile, et cetera, and logos through direct propositional speech. But they were never bifurcated and, and said that one was greater than the other or one told truth and the other didn't. That started to emerge after the emergence of Thucydides and history, Herodotus, and also, of course, you know, rational philo philosophy of ancient Greece and so on. This was an um, idea that arose over time, this idea yeah. of myth being other than historical fact. Right. And in yeah. fact, it's a very blurry line. And so myths can be historical. Sometimes they're ostensibly historical, in which I mean by that, that they may or may not be or contain an element. And how does one measure that by percentages? I don't know. But, but they're like intended to be true. Right. But I guess like the myth of Balder in Norse mythology ostensibly could be based in some historical Norse figure. But it doesn't have to be in order to be true. So that was what I was going to segue into and say, for a lot of people, that's a very alarming thought. But we commit a contradiction all the time because we understand this instinctively. We know that stories communicate, albeit indirectly, truth, because we find meaning and value and lessons in them. And those things illuminate the world we live in. And that's the basic correspondence theory of truth, is that that which corresponds with reality. Yes, truth can be found in myths. Now, myths can also be false. They can also, if we know that, that's an easy one. Myths can contain a great element of truth, but ultimately not ring true of all aspects of reality. That is, they don't offer a comprehensive, rationalistic, and imaginative explanation of things. But just by calling them a myth doesn't mean they're false. Okay, so now the true myth, that's what you were asking me about. So this gets into a lot of both Lewis and Tolkien, of course, I address in my book. But what Tolkien meant by this when he was talking to Lewis, who was a theist, circa 1931 when this conversation happened, but not a Christian theist again. He was trying to help Lewis understand basically that the Christian, Christian worldview is like any other myth. It's a story about the way things are. I'll put it that simply like the myth of the Norse and the myth of the myths of the Egyptians, et cetera, the Greeks, of course, with one incredible difference is that it happened in history. That is that it's not ostensibly or loosely based in history. The Bible has a track record since, I mean, not just since the 19th century, but with archeological and scientific correspondences with theology. Mm -hmm. I mean, we found over and over again, historical, et cetera, verification of what scripture testifies to. And so we know it to be a generally trustworthy document. So going beyond that, though, that Tolkien was trying to say that Jesus really lived, he really died, he really bodily rose from the dead, and truly and actually ascended into heaven. It isn't just a story that makes us feel good. Say, yeah. 
probably like the myth of Balder, who is also a dying and rising god, by the way. Mm. So he was trying to get Lewis to understand that how you embrace the, the love uh, of these other myths. Well, you can do that with Christianity, but the only difference, it's a small step from where you already are to becoming a Christian. You just have to now say, okay, this actually happened, which is really what you want because he was tapping into Lewis's love of the longing that he got in these pagan myths. He wanted them to be true, but he knew they probably weren't. So Tolkien touched that nerve and said, but this one really is. And it's like these others, but better. And isn't that exactly what you want to hear, Lewis? Right. And th that was it for him. That's amazing. That, yeah. And it's like the others because it does communicate something true about life mm -hmm. uh, and about the world. You know, you might read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which mm. like the myth of Balder very well may have some roots in a historical figure named Gilgamesh. The elements of that story actually ring true, I think, in a lot of ways, historically speaking. Yes. That being said, whether or not it's factually true, you mm -hmm. can gain insights into the nature of friendship and into the nature of being becoming a, a mature man and uh, yep. moving from a state of nature, shall we say, to a state of mm -hmm. civil civilization. Excellent. Um, yeah. So it teaches. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. my analysis of it's. Uh, I do Gilgamesh in all my classes. So you know, I'm like, wow. I think he's. He, you looked at my notes. So oh, <laughs> oh, very cool. Now I'm just going <laughs> off of memory. It's a great story. Yeah, well said. Um, but that being said, the story of Jesus Christ and the gospel, not only does that teach us about the arc of human life and, and the human creation and fall and the possibility of redemption, but like you said, it actually happened in fact. It happened in history. It's historically verifiable. And well, so it's a true myth. And, exactly. and I love that story of Tolkien telling Lewis, yeah. atheist Lewis, which yeah. is so funny to think about C.S. Lewis as an atheist, but he was. I know, I know. Telling him about this true myth. And that's how Lewis becomes open to this idea of Christianity is, yep. is through mythology. We think if we're going to convince the atheist, it's got to be through the rational argumentation. And it's exactly. Through, you know, look at all this evidence. And, and Tolkien important. got there through myth, which is exactly. mind-blowing. It is. Lewis writes about this in Surprised by Joy, you know, his autobiography. And, you know, he talks about being stuck between like, the shoals of rationalism and on the other side, imagination. You know, he was a very rational person, but all the things that he believed to be true, like the Norse myths and such that aroused this Seinsucht or this the German word for longing or pining for something were beautiful, but not true. And so he was stuck. And so Lewis you know, was already satisfied with rational arguments. He needed the imaginative building block that was missing that Tolkien kind of put into place. Now, this one is a doozy, but J. Warner Wallace has actually done great work on this recently in explaining this. But of course, long before he did, Lewis did in many of his writings where, you know, the reason why Christianity is the true myth, which in philosophy speak, we would understand it as a completely or you know completely objectively true myth that is it's the myth of all myths it is a totalizing narrative that is it's a comprehensive narrative yeah. that makes room for and has room for all other narratives that have truth goodness and beauty in them and completes them and fulfills them fills in the gaps in their lack of that is christianity fills in the lack of clarity that these other myths that they don't have about reality because right. many of these other myths just don't really expound on different elements of human life or make room for science or an afterlife and christianity satisfies all that 
a myth can be understood as a narrative worldview. Mm -hmm. We want to evaluate its truthfulness based on how well it can explain all the data of reality. Christianity not only does that, but it also explains why we have other similar myths. And it makes, go back to the Lewis story, it yeah. makes sense of why we had corn gods, as Lewis puts it, Dionysus, Adonis, all, kind of Demeter, I guess, who, you know, she goes down to find her daughter and she comes up again every spring. Corn um, gods? Yeah. So uh, harvest deities, dying, springtime deities oh. that mm. die in the winter and rise in spring. So the dying and rising myths, like Balder, I mentioned earlier, is another one. Osiris in Egyptian mythology, et cetera. It makes sense why those are there. And in fact, Lewis says, you know, that used to be a stumbling block for me that, oh, well, maybe Jesus is just the Jewish archetype version of Osiris, who's Egyptian. But he's saying, no, Jesus makes sense of why these other myths, which are very similar, but not too similar, of course, uh, were there in the first place. As God put, how did Lewis say it? He said, God sent the men good dreams, the pagan poets, good dreams. And I love that. They're not full reality, but they're premonitions of it. I remember Jay Warner Wallace talked about that actually on my show one time where he was yeah. talking about how the gospel is the fulfillment, not only of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, but also of the pre-Christian myths. That's right. Wow. It's a lot to take in. Admittedly. Yes, it is. Why, what is Tolkien trying to do in mm. his writings? Is he trying to communicate a worldview? Is he trying to work through his own worldview and establish it? So Peter Kreft, who's one of my favorite authors, you know, he, he's a great Tolkien scholar and philosopher. He says that all literature incarnates some philosophy or worldview, and it also tests every worldview. So that is, a story will be really good and well told and make sense comprehensively if it has a good embedded worldview in it. That is a good philosophy of life, if you want to put it that way. And I think that Tolkien himself, he tells us that his purpose was to have as one object the elucidation of truth and the encouragement of good morals in the real world by the ancient device, this is interesting, of exemplifying them in unfamiliar embodiments that they may tend to bring them home for people. That was in letter 153 that he wrote. And so here he's telling us we could just stop there and say he wanted to tell a good story, to teach truth, yada, yada. But he says so many things elsewhere about how he was and wasn't he kind of goes back and forth. Tolkien scholars have a word for this. I think it's contra-insistency, where he insisted on being contradictory all the time. He said, well, it is a Christian story, and I'm angry that you know nobody noticed that, especially a Catholic story. But then at the same time, in the same breath, on a different page, he says, it is most certainly not. And then another place, he says, it's a fundamentally Catholic story. Of course it is. And so he goes back and forth. So I don't think he was explicitly trying to, and I think this is a very important note for apologists, Tolkien's works should not be mined for apologetic material to, you know, plug it in to bring people to faith. We have to try to submerge it into our apologetic approach, dads especially out there, and educators as well. And this course is applicable for women. Anybody who's educating, you know, we want to not look at Tolkien or any other author as a Christian author, especially as somebody we can just cherry pick material from and then, you know, spit it out and say, well, that's the moral argument as seen in the two towers, because there's a great, great section where that's expounded, you know, and doesn't that make sense? Well, no, we don't want to approach it that way. We want to be like Tolkien and we want to, we want to make it part of our marrow. And Tolkien was so soaked in, in scripture and theology and loved the Lord so much that it just came out of him naturally. He's expressing his worldview. It's, it's yes, he was. There. It's in there. It's coming out. 
it's but Kreft says it's like the molten core of the earth, not rocks on the surface. Hmm. It's very deep. And he also says that allegory is consciously and intentionally exerted with the rational, intentional part of the mind. What Tolkien was trying to do in his writing is he was trying to simply tell a good story to do world building. But of course, as he says several times in different places, he wanted it to communicate, albeit indirectly, the Christian worldview. Okay. All right. So here's a question I have to ask you. What is your favorite work of Tolkien's? I mean, my favorite is in volume, I think it's volume 10 of, this is for big you know, nerds, The History of Middle-Earth. Morgoth's Ring, I think, is volume 10 of The History of Middle-Earth. And in there is a, a text that was written in, I believe, the late 1950s. It's not known for sure, but it was after the completion of The Lord of the Rings, which is, as I say in my book, important, as a meditation on the whole of his work, I think, at least, especially on the main novel, The Lord of the Rings. It's called The Debate of Finrod and Andreth. Now, Finrod is Galadriel's brother. He's right? having a debate with Andreth about the nature and what happens that's, after death. Or- that's true. However, my favorite part of the text is this little short dialogue. It's very short. Andreth asks the question later in the, in the narrative. How could Eru, God, Iluvatar, enter into the thing that he has made and than which he is beyond greater than which he is beyond measure greater. Can the singer enter into his tale or the designer into his picture? And Finrod responds, he is already in it as well as outside, but indeed Mm -hmm. the indwelling and the outliving are not in the same mode for, as it seems to me, even if he in himself were to enter in, he must still remain also as he is the author without. Now, there's a lot of theology packed in there, and I could spend the whole night. Transcendence, imminence, you know, incarnation. We could go on and on, and I know you know your stuff. So that's why it's my favorite. Bradley Berzer, who I interviewed on my podcast, is a great Tolkien scholar. He also says this is the most incarnational of all of Tolkien's texts. But it hasn't really come to light for a lot of people. It's usually something that big fans and, you know, Tolkien scholars and, you know, other people, interested parties will know about. And is your favorite the one that Christians should start with or should they start somewhere else? Yeah, they should start somewhere else. Where I would recommend anybody start is with The Hobbit because it's the prequel to The Lord of the Rings and you have to start somewhere. Of course, some people will disagree, start with The Silmarillion, but if that's your first impression, like I guess if you're into video games, you know, you want to play the first one before the sequel, I get it. That makes sense. Read the Silmarillion first, right? Because it's the creation myth, among other things. If you but try to read the Silmarillion first, you will die. Yeah. No. You will never exactly. make it. He'll you die. won't make it. You, you'll, be, you'll be done on like page three. Be like, yeah, you'll be done. It. Totally. Yeah. Page three, no if you it. make it that far. Yes. If, if. So, <laughs> I mean, I highly recommend you read the Silmarillion, of course. But, yeah, uh, agreed. Oh, start with The Hobbit. And then read The Lord of the Rings. Just read it for yourself, then read the Silmarillion, and then we could talk after that. But that's what I would recommend. People are starting to comment. So shout out to Nicole Byram, who just asked a question. And yes, let's uh, break out the pipes again here because it's time to get very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And was it C.S. Lewis that said, a pipe gives a wise man something to do while he's thinking, and it gives a foolish man something to put in his mouth? That's great. It sounds like Lewis. And I know he also talks about the benefits of, you know, being around a fire with friends. And, you know, I love his descriptions. He says it's like red beef and strong beer. 
Ooh. you know so that's just great yes that sounds like lewis but yeah it's time that's to get contemplative point point me in the right direction nicole asks does Gollum represent the devil mm. what do you think that's a great question my answer would be no I don't think that was Tolkien's intention. So one thing he's insistent about throughout his writings, especially the letters of Tolkien, is that there's not a one-for-one -one correspondence with any character with some, you know, external, historically rooted character in the primary world, which is a reference to our everyday world, whereas the secondary world is the world of the myth or the story. I, I don't deny that there are elements that, of correspondence between Gollum and the devil However, I don't think that's the direction he was going in. There are many redemptive qualities and pitiable qualities about Gollum that I think, you know, definitely align with the Lucifer, but it's also difficult to say, you know, Aragorn is the only type in the, the novel for Jesus because Frodo and Gandalf are, are as well. So maybe it's a yes and no, Nicole. It's a great question. I didn't really do a lot of research on Gollum. I did a lot of research on the monarchical aspects of Tolkien. So I'm a little out of my comfort zone there, but. If you read widely in Tolkien scholarship, I think you're going to find a similar answer. And actually, mm. in the end, he's actually used for a really good purpose, unwittingly, mm -hmm. haplessly, mm -hmm. which actually, come to think of it, biblically speaking, Satan is as well. That's, Satan, that's Satan, a good point. You know, the, what he intends mm. for evil, God actually uses for good. Amen. And so I totally see the, the parallels there, but having talked to you enough times about Tolkien, I knew the answer was going to be no, it's not a one-to-one -one parallel. We're not talking right. like a direct allegory. Yeah, exactly. That's the, excellent. So in the beginning, when the myth begins in the Silmarillion, mm -hmm. the way the world is created, as you mm -hmm. know, is by the Ainur, which are the celestial lowercase g gods. They sing the world into existence. They compose mm -hmm. the world musically. And one of the questions that we were asked was, do you feel that our world is as affected by heavenly music like Middle Earth was? What do you think about that? I would say that's a superb question. And I, I want to punt this first before I give my own answer to John Carswell, who's an acquaintance and I've been on his Tolkien Road podcast and even did a co-host with him a couple of oh, years really? ago. He wrote a book about the music of the Anwar. So I would say, you know, scripture, I think thought of Job, Psalms, Revelation, and various places talk about the angels and other Elohim, other lowercase g gods, or that is in the Heiser like view of the divine council singing for joy. There's references to this in scripture. And what that tells us is that creation glorifies God, the author of all things, the source of all things, that uh, who was not made, right? but made all things. And I think that it's a beautiful way, but we see this in Narnia too, with the magician's nephew, for those of you that have read that book, that Aslan creates Narnia through music as well, which probably, I'm not sure about this, may have been influenced by Tolkien, may have not. Mm. Yes, I think that it's advantageous in, in a metaphorically beautiful way to look at our world being affected by the music of the Aenor. If we translate this and transpose it into biblical terms, into the divine council, we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which has baffled a lot of people. A lot of scholars have said for, for ages that it's a reference to the Trinity when God says, let us, and I know this is controversial territory, but 
many scholars, including Heiser, God, God rest his soul, have proposed that this is God speaking to the divine council. Let us make mankind in our image. But in verse 27, God only makes human beings in his image, not the divine council's image. So I think that, you know, if we translate this into scriptural terms, yes, there's a connection. I think there, we, we can be affected by the story and feel its force and its explanatory beauty and power there. You know, mm. Look at the, the medieval worldview, the music of the spheres. The whole, the cosmos, what we can now consider to be outer space. Right. There are, there are different levels to it. There's these big transparent spheres. That's right. And, and each of the heavenly bodies, the, whether yeah. the sun, the moon and Mars and Jupiter, they're all embedded in these spheres mm. and they rotate. And those right. spheres are sort of what are they singing. powered by music? They're singing. Yeah. They're, they're ro yeah. their rotation causes a music that, mm. that we're too sub how did Lewis put it? We're, since we're sublunar, he equated that with, with death and living in a sinful place. It was his way of kind of talking about it, that we can't hear the music. We're not attuned mm. to it. And I would say there's lots of rich theological insights there to be mine. So yes, I think that it's a wonderful way to view reality, primary reality through this creation myth that Tolkien and Lewis have written. Yeah. I love that. And it's really yeah. amazing. When you think about music, there's only two kinds of created entities that make music, humans mm -hmm. and angels. And uh, animals do not make music. And you might say, well, what about birds? Birds sure. sing beautifully, dolphins, whales. Mm -hmm. Yes, the sounds that they make are beautiful. Absolutely. Mm. There's no question. But it's not music in the sense that it's rhythmic and it's tonal and there's mm. melody and harmony. And that is, we might say a human invention, but really I, would pref I prefer to think of it more as a human discovery. It's something that has always been embedded in creation. It's the possibility for rhythm and harmony. These have always been there. And mm -hmm. over time, we've actually unfolded it like, like a, a flower opening up over time or something. Mm -hmm. And here's the most fascinating and incredible thing that, that you find when you start to research the history of what we now consider to be modern music, music that's recognizable to our modern ears, mm -hmm. that it, it, all goes back to church history and the early church with the Gregorian chants that the mm -hmm. monks used to sing and the priests, they used to sing. And those chants, first they were monotonic and then they became polytonic or polyphonic. And, That's it, yeah. and you know, they introduced harmonies and yep. different modes. And you can literally trace that. And then they started getting into, you know, choirs and four-part harmonies, and they added in instruments, and they invented new instruments. Mm -hmm. And so what we recognize today in the West as music all comes back to the early church. And the mm -hmm. most incredible thing about this is in Ephesians 5.19, we are specifically commanded to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Mm -hmm. So music in its origin starts with the church obeying this command in Ephesians 5, 19. Mm. And so music is designed to communicate truth to one another about God and about his creation mm. and about the joy that we have in Christ. God sowed these seeds thousands of years ago that would eventually blossom and just fill our world. Every time you turn on Spotify, well, you ought to thank the apostle Paul for writing Ephesians 5, 19. Going back to the animals versus humans of it, Yes, the animal world praises God, like the Psalms and, and Isaiah say, you know, the trees clap their hands, the rivers shout, the mountains sing, you know, all that beautiful yeah. poetry, all conveying that 
all of creation is worshiping God, but they're not doing so intentionally. Right. And that's, that's, that's right. the difference. Yeah. So we still make by the law by which we're made, Tolkien writes in his poem, Mythopoeia. So mm. yeah, that's part one. And part two, just think of the, the solemnity of the Gregorian chants and how much truth, like to me, it always teaches me again, uh, just the beautiful contemplative sounds about just stopping and gazing at creation. It, it slows you down. Music has this wonderful way, whether it's vocal or symphonic or just through instruments to communicate truth in a wordless way, at least with, you know, the notes, but if it's, you know, lyrics, of course, too, I mean, just as a special way to communicate, I agree it was well, well said. Yeah. So, so music is, is our, is our world defined by music? Is our world affected by music? Yeah, apparently yeah. it is. Apparently it is. So here's, here's a really important one. Somebody put this up in the Facebook group and that is simply, yeah. are there really second breakfasts? Is this a thing? <laughs> can we, can we make this a thing? In our house it is. You're darn right. We, we always talk about it. I'm like, okay, kids, are you ready for second breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> We've had one already. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, look, we all do it. I and mean, sometimes we do breakfast for dinner. So yeah. Of Bro, course. Absolutely. Yeah. Chicken all and right. waffles, man. I mean, come on. The next question is this. Would Tolkien have understood the elements of the Old Testament, such as talking snakes and talking donkeys, as literally and historically true based on his regarding of scripture as true myth? What do you say? It's a great question. And I know who asked it. And I know he's a thoughtful fellow. And I love him. I think there's some confusion here, though, about the true myth and the literal and historical question. And my answer is no, because I, I think that Tolkien would have been wise enough and discerning enough to know that certain elements of scripture need to be interpreted based on their theological, literary, historical context. Think of these as kind of concentric circles in the way language is used. And more than anybody who, as a philologist, he would have understood the importance of language. Now, in saying that, to say something is metaphorical, let's say the talking snake in the Garden of Eden, as biblical scholars have well shown that this shows us that it's not an ordinary snake, but a spiritual being. Okay, so Tolkien would have probably known that. I don't know that for sure, but he's a pretty, you know, pretty smart guy. And his knowledge of not only scripture, but of Hebrew, Greek, and several other language, dozens of languages, I'm sure, would lead me to this conclusion. So would it have been, is it true? Yes, absolutely. It's scripture. But is it historical is a question I think he would have very wisely said, in some sense, probably yes. We, you know, it doesn't have to be historical. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be historical in order to be true. It didn't have to have happened in order for it to be true. And I know that is a bone of contention for many Christians. I know. But this is something that's really important, I think, that we have to grasp. And I know it may be something people want to go back and forth about, so I'll leave it open. But I would certainly say that Tolkien would have taken it as absolutely true. He probably would believe in faith that it happened or that something like it happened, but it's not it, the prerequisite for it to be history is not something that you know has to be there for it to be true. And I think we have to, uh, as a church, we have to begin to explore that. There's a spectrum in, in the Bible is that you know, you can't interpret it all as history because there are very clear portions of scripture that are intentionally not historical, like Ecclesiastes. You know, it's a deeply poetic, meditative text, okay? None of what he describes had to have happened in order for it to be true. It happens all the time to people. And so I know that this is a challenging idea, but yes, I think he would have regarded it as absolutely true. 
I want to give my two cents here as well. Please. Um, because when, when I teach apologetics to high schoolers every year, and one of the things that we talk about is that when it comes to how we interpret the Bible, genre really matters. And Mike, I completely agree with you that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. It's there to communicate truth to us, whether or not we're talking about a historical fact or not. Right. And so we start there. That's our baseline. Mm -hmm. um, then we get to certain passages like apocalyptic passages, like mm -hmm. we read Daniel and we read other books like Revelation or mm -hmm. Isaiah or Ezekiel. And we say, these are apocalyptic books. They're prophetic. They're serving a purpose. Revelation. John is describing what he saw, but he's also clearly employing literary techniques. And Mike, you and I have talked about foreshadowing in the Bible before. Oh, yeah. So, so there's a lot at play literarily in scripture and it's all sure. designed to communicate truth. I'm going to give my two cents on the talking donkey and talking snake though. Yeah, please. Uh, do. I think that when you look at the genre in which those stories are embedded, mm -hmm. I do see them as historical. The okay. reason why is because we'll give you an example when it comes to Genesis. In Genesis, I have tried and I cannot find a line demarcating where the book is historically inaccurate versus historically accurate. Nobody that I'm aware of really debates that the author of Genesis is trying to communicate history, for example, when he gets to Abraham right. or Joseph. You know, that's, these seem to be historical narratives, but people will, will, will say, well, yeah, but in the first few chapters, that's just dealing more, that's not really historical. It's more mythologically or typologically or archetypologically true. Yeah. And I say, yes, it is that, but I, I would say it's also historically true because I don't see a line where you move from, yeah. from one genre to the other. And there is no such thing, biblically speaking, as a bare fact, an mm -hmm. uninterpreted fact that's just fact, and it has no meaning. Absolutely. In the Bible, every fact has a meaning. And so, yes. especially in those early chapters of Genesis, every little detail is so laden with meaning, and yeah. it's so deeply theological and metaphorical and, and significant. It seems to me that, again, given genre analysis, that's yeah. just how significant those facts were. Sure. You know, like, like the, the snake talked. That's yeah. crazy sounding. And yeah, all the more for crazy sure. for the fact that it did happen in history and all the more, therefore, theologically significant. Does that make so sense? It does. And I'm with you, brother. 99.9%. .9%. I just, I want to double down on this, this idea that, again, a talking snake in, in Jewish context equals based on, you know, we look at Dead Sea Scroll literature, we look at archaeology, look at all of the, the scriptures. This is, this was a ancient Near Eastern way of communicating spiritual being. I think that actually happened. I agree. So I think that there was a real spiritual being that talked to Adam and Eve, to the first human beings, and tried to play God. I, I agree. do not contest that. Many liberal scholars will say it's a story. There really was no such thing. Maybe God created people. Maybe he didn't. Maybe right. there was the snake. I'm not going in that direction. That's, that's right. very wishy-washy. But I yeah. do want to double down and say that even if there wasn't an Adam and Eve so named, because we know the, the Hebrew background of these words, we know God created humans in his image. We know he created them, not, you know, spontaneously, you know, erupted into nature out of nowhere. We know that to be true. 
if we were to find out that it was Mike and Sarah, doesn't change the truth of it. And now I would be, I, I for one would not object to that if their names were Mike and Sarah. Those are good Hebrew names. But my point being is that it's the truth of that text is not contingent on what their names were. The truth of that text is not contingent on whether the snake was talking. Was Satan there? Was there someone who rebelled against the creator? And I believe that absolutely happened. Yeah. I do not contest that one bit. So they, it can just be tricky. But I think that Christians in particular, this is a within, in, you know, interchurch issue. We have to be okay with accepting and still holding on to the absolute truth of scripture, but not having to insist that it has to have happened exactly that way. Because as we look at scripture, we'll often learn things like a talking snake was a, an indirect way of saying a real historical spiritual being was there doing something he shouldn't have been doing. You know, it's like reading someone else's mail. You have to interpret it correctly. So I think it's a delicate issue, but I, I don't see that we disagree at all. I just think we're, we're, ta we're using different words to say the same thing. Yeah. It's gotta be a yeah. spiritual, be, spiritual entity. I think we see that yeah. And how that entity is referenced later in yes. Revelation 12, 9, it reads, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who mm. is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's right. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Mm -hmm. And you compare that with both Genesis and with Jesus telling his disciples yeah. that he saw Satan fall like lightning and it's like, okay, so we're talking like it's, we're yeah. talking about the same entity. Absolutely. Even if it's a snake, we're not talking about just, you know, the snake that you get from the pet store. So one thing that people need to realize too, Mike and I are friends. We're, I, I think we respect each other greatly. We may not agree on every issue and that's just going to be, you know, I try to worship friends. the Lord yeah. in yeah. my way and he worships the Lord in his way and my way is right. His way is wrong, but that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. it's fun. I, I think I you're breaking up, Joel. Did, yeah, did yeah, I hear no, that right? It doesn't matter. You, it doesn't matter. We'll yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> we'll play it back later. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Um, no. Let's finish with this question. Do you feel that the topic of beauty should be dealt with more in Christian circles? Have we neglected aesthetic aesthetics? Mm -hmm. What are good sources on that topic? What should be the Christian's approach to beauty? Literarily? Aesthetically, sure. architecturally, however you want to take that. Absolutely. Oh, what a great topic. As a humanities professor and somebody who has a lot of background in aesthetics, philosophical contemplation of the nature of beauty is what aesthetics is. Yeah. That's one definition. I appreciate this. And I can say absolutely. Yes, we do neglect it in the church. Other scholars who are wiser than I and have been at this longer, like Joseph D. Waddell, who's wrote, written a book called The Beauty of the Faith, highly recommended. And of course, our good mutual friend, Paul Gould, who just recently wrote a book called A Good and True Story. He was on my podcast recently. Man, a terrific book and a terrific chapter on beauty in that book that I think everybody ought to read, especially within the church. So as far as what to read, there's that. But yes, I do think we neglect it. And I think the reason is because we're, you know, we're, we're nervous as Christians to explore this topic because it's very touchy because people have been indoctrinated to think that it's in the eye of the beholder. Tolkien is a master at describing things and there's just wonderful passage. This is Frodo talking in the Fellowship of the Ring, page 82. So it's very early on, chapter one or two. He found himself wondering at times, especially in the autumn, about the wild lands and strange visions of mountains that he had never seen came into his dreams. He began to say to himself, perhaps I shall cross the river myself one day. 
To which the other half of his mind always replied, not yet. And I just love that because I've, I always get wanderlust in autumn and it was, precedes my reading of Tolkien in 2001 for the first time. So it's strange how Tolkien has this gift for saying things that maybe we're ashamed to say. And Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he says, you know, we take revenge on this feeling, this pining, this longing by calling it adolescence or romanticism, but we all feel it. And Lewis refers to it as the inconsolable secret. We all have it. And he wants to rip it open in us. And there's this beautiful, powerful speech that he gives in The Weight of Glory on that. And I think everybody should read it. And if I have time, I'm going to come back to it. But yes, aesthetics is su super important because truth is objective. Logically, it makes absolute perfect sense why it has to be. Therefore, it follows that goodness is objective. Why wouldn't beauty be? Why would that be an exception? And it's very easy to talk about this. Look at two people who disagree about something that's fair, moralistically. Think about two people who disagree whether a bridge that they're looking at find one finds it beautiful, the other doesn't. Well, doesn't that right there disprove that beauty is subjective? Absolutely not. You would only disagree if you had in your mind a shared mutual understanding of an objective standard of beauty mm -hmm. over which you argue. Otherwise, you wouldn't argue at all. You would just say, oh, yeah, uh, your opinion is just as valid as mine. But now the word valid means nothing because valid to whom? Right. Your validity is different than my validity. So what does that even mean? It gets reduced to chemicals, neurons, firing, and feelings, and therefore language means nothing. It's all hollow. So I think this is very important that apologists in particular claim aesthetics and begin to drive home how important it is to not only study it, but to appreciate it. God is a beautiful God. He's the source of beauty. We long for him when we see beautiful things and we can't get enough of it. He's the one that we're really pining for. As Lewis says in this great speech, and Joel, I just have to read this part one uh, real yeah. quick. This is C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. Mm. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if these things are mistaken for the thing itself, or we might say the person himself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Mm. And it goes on. I mean, Lewis, God help us, was just a poet. How yeah. beautiful that is and how true that is. So yes, aesthetics is super important. It is also very neglected, I think. But it's, it's clearly, as I've referenced some authors, starting to be retrieved and yeah. studied again. And so I think that's very an important point to make that the, the, you know, the wind's blowing in a different direction. So I, I love to see that. And actually you're reminding me of a podcast episode I listened to yesterday from a show called the theology podcast. Oh. And they talk mm. about the objectivity of beauty. And yeah. there was one point that they made where it really resonated with me, Mike. And that was this oftentimes when people are aesthetically drawn to something that is ugly. For example, brutalist architecture and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Things that are not in and of themselves beautiful. Mm. Oftentimes, the reason why they are drawn to those things is not because of the beauty that's intrinsic or inherent in that thing or reflective, maybe is a better word, in that thing, but it's because of more of an ideological 
pre-commitment that they have. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mm -hmm. committed to undoing the historical traditional values of aesthetics. And maybe their whole point and program is, you know, you think about a brutalist architect. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't know what brutalism is, look up, I think it's the Boston City Hall. It is oh. just this grotesque building that is an example of brutalist architecture. And the name brutalist as a school of architecture says it all. Oh. The idea behind these ugly movements in art, yeah. architecture, music, is it, they're, it's a pre-commitment to the subjectivity of beauty. So mm -hmm. what they're saying is beauty is subjective. Therefore, let's sure. subvert and undermine the yeah. traditional standards of beauty. And we're going to replace it with this. But anybody can look at a brutalist building compared to like a Beaux-Arts or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a neoclassical or a neo building, Michelangelo. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just, I mean, anyone who's objective can look at that and go, no, the, the statue by Michelangelo is, you know, is beautiful, objectively beautiful. That's right. Brutalist building is not. But if you have an ideological pre-commitment yeah. to undermining beauty mm -hmm. and you don't believe in God, you don't believe that God sets those standards, well, then, yeah, yeah. you're going to come up with those conclusions. Well, sure. And, and you know, okay, let's, let's point this out, that as truth and goodness, so with beauty, arises in subjects. We are the subject. So how yeah. we know truth, goodness, and beauty is, of course, subjective. What else would it be? But it's not just in our heads. And Gould right. makes that point really well. And it, it was a simple sentence, you know, is that beauty is observed and experienced in our minds, but is, does not just exist within our minds. Yes. And I said, wow, that is exactly right. And so that, I think, is a really great olive branch for people who insist that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, i.e. it is purely subjective, and says, oh, well, well yeah, that, that makes sense. I might see something as beautiful and you don't, but it could be you don't see it that way because you're not as educated in art as I am, or maybe you grew up being told that this was ugly, or maybe you just haven't gotten it yet. It doesn't mean that it isn't beautiful. I'm going to put a link to your book. The Good okay. News of the Return of the King. And, oh, no. Mike, I know that anyone who wants to enjoy Tolkien and wants to get more from it, after starting with The Hobbit, mm -hmm. needs to read your book. So tell us about your book and where they can get it. Thanks, Joel. It means a lot. You can get it anywhere books are sold. But it would be wonderful if you supported my publisher, to whom I'm very grateful, Stock. You go to their website, they have an ebook version, you know, all that good stuff. So yeah. I'd appreciate that if anybody who wants to dive deeper takes a look at the book. But yeah, it's a, it explores basically the heart of the book is what does it mean to say that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, especially, but his entire corpus of work is Christian? How does that Christian worldview get communicated without compromising its integrity? And I think that's the long and short of it. But there's a lot of other goodies in there as well. Go get that book, check out his stuff. And Mike? We'll see you next time, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Joel. Thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. God bless. You too. All right, well, you've been listening to Mike Jahoski, author of The Good News of the Return of the King, as he has been unpacking the Tolkien legendarium for us, the Tolkien mythology. If you enjoyed this, please join the Think Squad. The Think Squad is our free online community. It's a Facebook group filled with over 950 others who are on the exact same journey that you're on, seeking to live a Christian life and build a legacy in your family to become the worldview leader that your family and your church need. 
join the Think Squad today. You can get there simply by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Think Squad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D, just like it sounds. Join the Think Squad. That's about all we have for you today. This has been a production of the Think Institute. We are a nonprofit funded by you. If you haven't yet joined us and become a ministry partner, please consider doing that at thethink.institute. We are a Christian teaching organization and we are based by God's grace. 